Uh, we continue on in our sermon series through the book of Hebrews. My sermon this morning, this morning entitled, How to Heed a Warning. We are now into the final portion of the book of Hebrews, a portion which entails concluding exhortations and warnings. If you recall, the first portion of the book of Hebrews pertained to the supremacy of the Son over angels. And the second portion of Hebrews pertained to the supremacy of the Son over Moses and Joseph. The third section considered Jesus' preeminence over the Levitical priesthood and sacrifices, and now we get to the last section of the book. Aaron Hag preached just before our Christmas sermon series. He preached on a the severe warning that immediately precedes the passage we look at today. It went like this. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The passage we consider today softens that warning a little, offering an exhortation. Now, before we get to that passage and before I preach my sermon, I'm going to ask Nathan Hessman to come and read that portion of Hebrews to us from Hebrews chapter 10 that the passage is found in. I remind the congregation, because we haven't done it in a while, that when he's finished, he will say, this is the word of the Lord, and our response is, thanks be to God. Nathan. Good morning, church. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. 
For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let me read again to you the passage that I'll focus on this morning, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 through 39. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. First point this morning, recall, verse 32 through 34. In order to heed the warning to endure, believers must recall the past. The author of Hebrews gets very practical in this section as he continues to provoke the readers so that they might persevere, so that they might endure in their faith through the difficult circumstances they are facing. The practical admonition is that they must recall their past. They must remember what they've been through already. The author encourages the believers to remember their suffering. They were to recall their suffering when they first believed the gospel. Apparently, their belief in Christ and the public display of that belief and how they lived their lives resulted in verbal abuse and physical mistreatment. They were subjected to dishonor, to disgrace, to insults, simply because they themselves believed but they also encountered public reproach and public affliction as well as the plundering of their possessions simply because they were associated with other believers. Now, we need to consider the text carefully. The text doesn't exhort recipients simply to remember suffering. It exhorts them to remember how they endured the hard struggle that they experienced in their suffering. They endured. And they endured with joy and with compassion. And so how they suffered is paramount. Just that they suffered is not enough. They endured their suffering with joy. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. They seemed to have responded in line with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember when Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you have ever had anything stolen from you, you know how incredible this response of joy is. Have you ever had your home broken into? Have you ever had your car broken into and valuables taken? Perhaps even your car itself was stolen? We've had both. We've had someone break into our home and take things and break into our car and thank and take things. And to be honest, joy was not my response. I was angry. And when someone enters into your home, you feel a type of violation, a type of sadness that is peculiar to that experience, I think, but not joy. And when I was robbed, it wasn't because of my faith. Yet these Christians endured the plundering of their possessions that was directed at them because they were believers. And they endured it with joy. They also endured their suffering, showing compassion to others who were suffering. It seems far too often that when I suffer, I am concerned only about myself. I'm concerned about what I am going through. My compassion for others' nozzle is screwed down tight. There's not much output for others too often in my life. I wonder if that is the case for you. Yet in the midst of their own suffering, these believers endured, and they endured with compassion for others. This is the practical application coming out of the warning, if I might paraphrase the author of Hebrews. You believers who are considering abandoning your faith, you need to hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering unless or lest you keep blatantly sinning and there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment. You need to recall your own endurance in the face of suffering. You need to remember when you were joyfully and compassionately faithful in the face of difficulties and in the face of persecution. That's what the author of Hebrews is admonishing the readers. And that is how they should heed the warning. So how might we heed the warning that we have heard in Scripture? Aaron Hag, as I said, exhorted us to heed the warning just before Christmas as he considered this warning. I and others have encouraged us to heed the warnings in Hebrews. So how can we do that? Well, one thing we can do is to recall the work of God in our lives previously when we went through suffering and endured. We need to learn to remember, not just remember, we need to learn to remember well. There is a godly type of remembering that encourages us to press on. Psalm 77 verses 11 through 12 I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. In the face of current suffering, 
especially suffering that causes us to doubt our faith or causes us to consider walking away from Jesus, we need to remember those times of suffering in which we, with God's help, endured. Now, not all remembering is godly remembering. Not all of our attempts to remember are found to be evidence that we have remembered well. There is a nostalgic type of remembering that can distract us or impede us as we attempt to persevere. We become entranced or apathetic because of the good old days or the glory days. That's not the type of remembering we're being called to this morning. There is also a haunting and hurtful type of remembering that may cause us to forsake enduring. Memories of past sins and past hurts and past pains. Memories which exacerbate our pain and produce doubt and despair are not what we are called to remember. We are called to remember when God has shown himself strong in our lives, when we have seen him come through for us, and when he has held us fast, even as we do our best to endure. Some of you need to do this. Some of you need to go home today and you need to sit down at a table and you need to write out on paper all the ways that God has helped you endure. And in that recalling of your past endurance, you will be encouraged to continue to endure. Bringing to mind your past perseverance through suffering will help you endure going forward. Now, for some of you, this truth will lead you to a question. What is it about recalling past endurance and difficulties is helpful to our present endurance and difficulties? What is it? Well, that's where we go in our next point. Point number two, retain, verse 35. In order to endure as they did before, they must retain their confidence their confidence in God's promises in the gospel and in their fulfillment in Jesus and his sacrifice. We read in verse 35, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. The word confidence has come up already in the letter of Hebrews. You remember Hebrews 3, verse 5 and 6? Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. How about Hebrews 4.16? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Or Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. From the author's use of the word confidence in this epistle, we can define confidence in the book of Hebrews as an internal attitude or an internal posture of trust, certainty, and assurance. And that trust, certainty, and assurance is based 
on the promises of God in the gospel, which have been fulfilled in Jesus through his sacrificial death. We can have an inner trust, an inner assurance to draw near and receive grace because of what Christ has accomplished. We have an internal posture of certainty to draw near to God with full assurance because our hearts have been sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus. This confidence is the confidence we must have in all of our life, but we must have it particularly in suffering. We must not lose this confidence. And we're learning this morning, we can retain this confidence by recalling how God has helped us endure in the past. Our recalling of past endurance promotes a retention of our present confidence in the promises of God in the gospel and in their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That means, as the recipients of Hebrews recalled their past endurance, they recognized that it was Jesus and it was his work of salvation that ensured their present endurance. They could have sang from experience, those he saves are his delight, Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost, his promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. They had learned that lesson. And for us today, if we are to not throw away our confidence, if we are to retain our assurance and our certainty and our trust in God's promises and the gospel and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ, then we need a few things. First, we need to understand the gospel. The gospel is the good news that in spite of humanity's rejection of God, the God who created the world and created mankind, in spite of our rejection of him, evidence through our sinning, that is everything we do or do not do that is contrary to his will, in spite of our sinning against God, which leaves us liable to judgment, we can find forgiveness. We can find forgiveness for our sins and reconciliation to God by trusting in Jesus. If you've never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and therefore have never been reconciled to God, you must do that today. That is the gospel, and we need to understand it if we are to not throw away our confidence. And second, we need to know the promises of the gospel and how Christ has fulfilled them. Now, there are many, many gospel promises, and there are many ways to learn them, but I'm going to encourage you to know the gospel in one particular way that has been helpful to me for a long time. Know the promises of the gospel by considering the images the Bible uses to describe what Christ has done. So let's have a little quiz this morning. I'm going to say a biblical word that describes the good news of what Christ has done 
and you see if you know what it means. Now, this is a silent quiz. Keep this all to yourself. Keep score in your own mind. Don't speak out the answers. I'm going to say four words, and you determine if you know what they mean. The first word is redemption. Do you know what it means? If yes, you get a point. Second word, reconciliation. Do you know what it means? If yes, you get a point. Third word, propitiation. Fourth word, justification. Now, I'm going to give you the answers because some of you may not know how you scored. Redemption is deliverance from bondage or legal obligation, especially by the payment of a ransom. We have been redeemed by Jesus. Reconciliation is the removal of antagonism and rest, uh, the restoration of peace between two parties at odds. Jesus reconciled us to God. Propitiation is the act of appeasing God by sacrifice. Jesus propitiated the wrath of God against us. Justification is God's pronouncement of a believer as righteous. We have been justified in Christ. So how did you score? I would that every one of you knew exactly what those words mean and that all of you got four out of four on that quiz. Not because it means that you did well on the quiz, but because it means you know how Jesus fulfilled God's promises in the gospel. It means you can be strengthened in order to retain your confidence because you know what God has done through Jesus Christ. When the accusations of the devil threaten condemnation, you can hold fast your confidence because you know the good news of the gospel is that God has declared you righteous in Jesus Christ. You have been justified. When your conscience convicts you of sin, you can retain your confidence and not sink into despair because you know the good news of the gospel is that you are freed from sin. Through Jesus' death on the cross, you are redeemed. When you feel distant from God because you have sinned, again, you know the good news of the gospel is that you have been brought into a close, loving relationship with God through Jesus in spite of your sin. You have been reconciled. And when you feel that God is angry at you because of your failures and you lose your confidence that you will not face punishment, you know the good news of the gospel means that his wrath against you has been removed. Jesus propitiated God in his death. To have confidence based on the gospel means you have to know what the gospel is and you have to know what the gospel does. These four words are a great place to start. Redemption, reconciliation, propitiation, and justification. That would be one way for you to practically apply this admonition to not throw away your confidence. Now, having looked to the past as a way of encouraging believers to retain their confidence, the author reinforces this admonition by looking ahead to the future 
and looking around at the present. Point number three, reinforce, verses 36 through 39. A glimpse to the future and a glance at the present reinforce the admonition to endure and not throw away our confidence. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The author reinforces the need for maintaining a confidence in the gospel and in the gospel promises and in Jesus Christ now by looking to the future. The believers are told they need endurance in order to receive the future promises of God. Now, the author alludes to two passages from the Old Testament to fill out this idea of looking to the future. The author makes reference to Isaiah chapter 26, verses 20 through 21, and Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. The passage from Isaiah in Isaiah reads this way. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the bloodshed on it and will no more cover its slain. This allusion is a proclamation of the day of the Lord as a day of judgment for the unfaithful and a day of protection for the faithful. The passage from Habakkuk that is alluded to reads this way. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. This reference is a revelation of judgment to come, a judgment that will reward the person who lives by faith and punish the unrighteous. So the admonition to retain one's confidence is bolstered now by looking to the future, a future in which the faithful are rewarded and the unfaithful are punished. Believers should not throw away their confidence so that they might endure, so that their reward can be received and punishment can be avoided. So the author points to the future to reinforce this admonition. But he also points to the present. We see in the last verse of this passage a glance at the present. The author says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The author has his readers now look to the presence. He has told them to recall the past, to hold on to their confidence. He has told them to look to the future and its promises so that they don't throw away their trust and their assurance. And the passage finishes with the author speaking not to who they were and not to who they will be, but to who they are now. They are those who have faith and preserve their souls. They are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. What a beautiful encouragement the recipients of the letter now hear in the author's words. He sees them and himself 
as those who live by faith, as those who live faithfully, as those who do not shrink back. What an uplifting reinforcement of this exhortation to hold fast. Now, we could practically apply this point by speaking of how we can retain our confidence by looking to the future and how we can resolve to trust and bolster our assurance by seeing our present identity as those who do not shrink back. But I want to go in a different direction this morning. As I finish my sermon, I want to make one last point of application. And I want to address something I see in these verses that flies in the face of our modern-day secular culture. I want to spend a few minutes discussing how I see this verse in particular, implying that an aspect of North American culture is dreadfully and dangerously unchristian. Now, in order to do this, I need everyone to hear me out, to not jump to conclusions as I work through this, and to listen carefully and to listen with charity. I see an implication here that contradicts and opposes the victimhood culture of modern-day North America. Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning wrote a book that was published in 2018 called The Rise of Victimhood Culture, Microaggressions, Safe Spaces, and the New Culture Wars. In that book, they define victimhood culture as a culture in which individuals and groups display a high sensitivity to being offended, a tendency to handle conflicts by complaining to authorities, and a search to cultivate an image of being victims who deserve pity and assistance. And I think in many ways their assessment is accurate. We do see a culture now, wherein people are much more easily offended. In fact, the very prominence of the idea of microaggression proves the point. By definition, a microaggression is a small thing. And yet society moves mountains to try and avoid any type of offense, even if it's a small offense or an imagined one. And clearly, There is also a significant increase in the petitioning, perhaps badgering, and even intimidation of authorities or anyone else who will listen to respond to complaints of being offended or triggered or made to feel unsafe. And finally, there is a preoccupation and maybe even an obsession in our society of portraying oneself as a victim and identifying oneself as a victim. And it's this last aspect of victimhood culture that I want to focus on this morning because I believe today's passage from God's Word directly contradicts that aspect of victimhood culture. The current culture of victimhood is largely unbiblical, unchristian, and in fact, I suggest to you this morning, it is a pernicious aspect of modern-day society to which young people are particularly susceptible. Our passage today demonstrates that Christian culture or the culture of Christ 
is opposed to victimhood culture in many ways, though I only focus on the aspect of identity. So here is what I am presenting for your consideration today. And again, I ask you to listen carefully and with charity. Christian culture, or the culture of Christ, as described and explained in Scripture, is a culture where individuals and groups take victimhood seriously, respond to victims compassionately, and yet refuse to chase after or revel in the victim identity. Let me say that again. A Christian culture or the culture of Christ, as described and explained in Scripture, is a culture where individuals and groups take victimhood seriously, respond to victims compassionately, and yet refuse to chase after or revel revel in the victim identity. See, the author of Hebrews is speaking to Christians who were victims. The author doesn't ignore or minimize that. We read this morning that the recipients had endured a hard struggle with sufferings. They had sometimes been publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. They had experienced the plundering of their property. Now, in fact, the book of Hebrews, as we go on through the book, understands that there has always been victims in the midst of God's people. And we will read in the next chapter about God's faithful. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. The author of Hebrews understands there are victims, yet in acknowledging that they were victims, the author of the book of Hebrews does not glory in their victimhood, nor does he ascribe victim as an identity to them. Those who had struggled and suffered, those who had been exposed, reproached, afflicted, and plundered are designated as not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their soul. I think we see a similar posture from the Apostle Paul. Paul is realistic in regards to his own suffering. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't denigrate it. But neither does he revel in his victimhood. Or neither does he see his identity as such. He wrote, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 14. Paul's posture, his attitude in regards to his own 
victimization is miles away from the modern pursuit and glorying in victimhood. Later on in 2 Corinthians, Paul again honestly assesses his suffering and honestly assesses the times when he was a victim. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is this, the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak, Paul says. But in his conclusion coming out of this discussion of his sufferings and other things, we hear this. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Again, Paul does not glory in being a victim, and he does not see his identity as such. And in fact, his weakness is evidence of his strength because of Christ. So I think what we see in Scripture without having time for a full survey of the whole Bible, is that the Christian faith certainly acknowledges victims. And they don't minimize, it doesn't minimize that. It sees it as a real thing. And it calls us believers to come to the aid and help of victims. And yet, it calls believers to not adopt a victim mentality or a victim identity, or to revel in their victimhood. So for the sake of clarity, let me summarize again. Let me attempt to make very clear what I am saying in regards to victims and victimhood culture in Christianity. Perhaps I do well to start with clarifications on what I am not saying. I am not saying there are no victims in this life. The Bible is clear there are victims. And that is a result of sin. And God is not okay with suffering and pain. And his heart goes out to those who have been victimized. And his wrath goes out to those who are victimizers. I'm not saying that victims should ignore or deny the reality of their victimhood. If you are a victim at the hands of another person, or because of life circumstances, or even because of your own sin, do not bury that. Do not deny that. Do not pretend it is not the case. Rather, tell someone, someone you trust, and allow them to support you and walk with you in that. If you're a victim of any kind, please confide in a friend. Speak to one of our staff. Talk to one of our elders. Contact Rick, our director of biblical counseling. Don't deny or ignore the fact that you are a victim. I'm not saying that this morning. What I am saying 
is that the Bible and the culture of Christ confronts this victimhood culture of today in several ways. And one of the ways it confronts victimhood culture is in regards to the cultivation of and glorying in the victim identity. The culture of Christ and Christians is one where individuals and groups take victimhood seriously, respond to victims compassionately, and yet refuse to chase victimhood as an identity and refuse to glory or revel in being a victim. Brothers and sisters, let us heed the warnings we have heard in Hebrews. Let us recall our God-enabled past endurance through suffering. Let us hold fast to our confidence, knowing that our reward is coming. Let us see ourselves as those who have faith and persevere, and those who do not shrink back and are destroyed because of God's promises in the gospel and because of Christ's fulfillment of those promises. Let's pray. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And I pray, Father God, that your spirit would help each one of us, that you would help us to remember well, that you would help us to learn to discipline ourselves to remember the past and the sufferings that we have faced that you have helped us to endure that would be encouraged by that and motivated by that to continue to endure and hold fast to our confidence. I pray, Father God, that you would help us to be students of the gospel, to understand what it is and what you've done. Let our lives be a perpetual study of the glory of the gospel that you have worked through your son, Jesus Christ. And Father God, I pray that you would help us to face suffering, to face difficulty, to face pain as your word indicates we should face it. Not as the way, not in the way that the world tells us we should engage it, but in the way your word tells us to. Help us to be a church that takes the victimization of people seriously. And help us to be people who respond with enthusiastic compassion for those who are victims. But help us not to pursue and desire to cultivate an identity of victimhood. Help us rather to pursue Christ's likeness. We ask this in his name. Amen.